Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast? Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. What is going on, everybody, in WTSP World War II land? More importantly, what's going on with you in Texas, Jeff? How are you doing, friend? Oh, man, if I was doing any better, I guess I'd have to be two people. Oh, yeah? That good, huh? Man, we, uh, you know, I live in the heart. I, I think I bragged about this uh, last episode. I live in the heart of Texas wine country. And I was just walking out and about on the back 40, and, uh, man, all them grapes are coming in. So uh, it's, a, it's a lovely time of year. What is the preferred grape to grow in the uh, Texas wine country? What's the preferable, preferably, when it comes to wanting to uh, get a vineyard up and going? Uh, that's a really good question. There, there's about three different kinds of grapes that grow just on our place up here. Um, Muscadine is kind of pretty, pretty popular. It's not a very popular wine, but it's a popular grape that just kind of grows wild here. Um, but you can imagine all of the wineries around here that have their little grape stock, all the birds that eat them and, and the seeds spread everywhere and cross pollinate and everything. So there's all kinds of grapes growing out here, man. When did the vineyard, the vineyard, when did the, the, the bleh, when did the vineyard uh, thing pop up in that area? Has it been going on a while or is it relatively new? No, as far as I know, um, I don't know the time frame, but apparently in France there was some huge brush fires decades ago that knocked out a lot of the French vineyards over there. And it was actually, they, they had transplanted a lot of the grapes from here to France. Uh, to actually help get that thing back going again. So uh, Texas and France and, of course, like Napa in, in California, it's all you know, kind of similar um, amounts of rainfall and atmosphere. And I guess so um, they grow just as good here as they do over there. So, no, I think it's been, it's been like this for quite some time. Well, the only reason I ask, I know it sounds like a silly question, but I grew up in northern Kentucky, and uh, there was never any vineyards there. And I left, um, you know, I moved to Ohio, but I stayed in the area, in the tri-state Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky area until 2001. Then I moved to California, then I migrated down to Florida. And I went back home to Kentucky like a year and a half ago. And the area of Kentucky where I grew up, there's all these vineyards now. It's like the northern, northern Kentucky vineyards and wine area. It's like, when did this happen? When did somebody come here and figure out, oh, the mineral content of the soil or the water that comes from these springs, whatever, you know, because it, it gets cold during the wintertime, you know, we have snow and all that. So I guess they either have a growing season or they do it in greenhouses. But for some reason, someone decided northern Kentucky was like conducive to growing grapes. And all of a sudden that area is now considered wine country in Kentucky. And I was like, when the hell did that happen? I've only been alive for 42 years. And this just happened within the last 10. Who decided that this was the thing to do? So that's why I kind of asked if it was a a growing trend in that area or if it has some legacy there. That's the only reason I asked. Yeah, yeah. I think it has some legacy. What is 4th of July like in the Lone Star State? <laughs> uh, it's pretty wild. Um, I actually, I attended a wedding. It I was saw a beautiful that. wedding. Yeah. Um, so I didn't get to do all the cool 4th of July festivities that we typically do, but, um, it, you know, it was, it was a little more chill than, than years past, of course, with everything. And 
I know probably people, some of our listeners who don't live in Texas probably think that we're just a bunch of uh, rowdy rednecks down here just catching stuff on fire and shooting guns in the air. Uh, that's not not always the case. No, that's what we do down uh, here in Florida. <laughs> well, I got to say the barn that you were at, that was freaking beautiful. That place was outrageous. God, man. Yeah, that was just that was just a beautiful venue. That was a, that's not ten miles north of me, just out in the middle of nowhere country, just beautiful rolling hills, and it's called Hidden Ranch, or, or Hidden River Ranch, I think it was Hidden River Ranch. And uh, the, it, no kidding on the name because you go through this big beautiful automatic gate, and it seems like you're driving forever on this private land, um, just whitetail, you know, grazing everywhere, and these big nice ponds with these huge windmills and of course the thousands of live oak trees and you finally crest this hill and see the venue that barn like you, that you saw and the, and the uh, reception hall and overlooked a huge pond and uh it's just it was beautiful it was just so typical texas man it's just it really was it was, just, it was awesome my parents lived out in texas in the early 2000s and sadly i wasn't able to visit them at their home there so the only time I have been to Texas was when I was out there hanging out with you, and I love the state. I think it's a beautiful place, and uh, I get excited every time I see anything coming out of there. I got so excited, in fact, that I had to trade in my Toyota Tacoma for a Tundra that was built in San Antonio, so I at least brought that home <laughs> with me, I guess. But uh, right. real quick, um, before the show, you know, as I mentioned on past episodes, a friend of mine a while back, he worked in radio, and he thought it would be a great source of content for this podcast he got what he got me the New York Times complete World War II, the coverage of uh, the entire conflict. Basically, what this is this is a republication of every single news story that the New York Times put out, even up before the war, when things started popping off in 1938. It even goes back a little earlier than that when they're covering world world events. And one of the things I like to do is the day that we record a podcast, I like or if there's a holiday or something of uh, note that has just happened. I like to go into the book here and find some uh, news stories. You know, it's pretty cool. This, you know, on this date, 1943, this is what the New York Times uh, posted. And Jeff, I got to hmm. tell you, I don't know if it was the Times, maybe because we had decorum, or if we had appreciation for the nation in itself, unlike what, sadly, what we're seeing now. What I'm bringing up, the reason I bring this up is, okay, Let's turn to the book. Let's see what happened on July 4th, 1941. Nothing. The New York Times did not post anything about the war on July 4th. They posted uh, the text of Stalin's broadcast on July 3rd. The next story that they posted wasn't until July, se- uh, July 7th. So it was almost like they took the holiday off or they didn't want to distract people from the events. Or maybe I'm just, uh, you know, reading a little too much into this. Maybe there wasn't anything going on. So let's skip to 1942. Uh, July 2nd, they put a story out. Nazi claims ports on uh, July 5th. Navajos complete training as Marines. Once again, no news story ran on July 4th in 1942. Okay, once again, maybe it was a slow news day. So let's skip ahead to 1943. Um, they ran a story on July 1st. MacArthur starts Allied Offensive in the Pacific and didn't run a next story until Ju- J- July 6th. So once again, they took the 4th and the 5th off. And, and the story continues. We go down to uh, 1944, July 3rd. Uh, inquiry confirms Nazi death camps, 100 and, 
sorry, 1,715 Jews said to have been put to death by the Germans. The next story, July 5th, Nazis continue to uh, guess about General Pat, uh, Patton's army location. And then let's go to the end of the war, 1945. July 2nd, 4,000 tons of fired missiles bring ruins to four enemy cities. The next story about the war wasn't until July 17th. So I just thought that was a little, maybe a little insight. Because once again, this book claims to have every single, you know, news or story that the New York Post, or the, I'm sorry, the New York Times ran during the war. And it's just, I don't know, I just found it a little interesting that every year through, even before the war, well, from 1941 to 1945, they ran nothing on July 4th or 5th. It's like they're just trying to go on vacation, maybe just give a roll a break from the bad yeah. news, which is complete opposite of what goes on now. All right. We feed on negativity. Now the media's like, hey, everybody's home on vacation. Everybody's home watching TV. Let's uh, get everybody on the panel, double down, and just talk about how horrible everything is. And uh, it's just, right. can we bring decorum back a little bit? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That would be nice. But, you know, history does repeat itself, so it'll it'll come back. Yep. Down here, uh, because of the COVID and all the cancellation of the 4th of July events, they actually made fireworks legal here in Florida for this year. Now, I know some of you at home scratch your head saying, wait a minute, I was down in Florida last year. There's fireworks stores all over the place. You're trying to tell me they're illegal? Yes, that's why when you go to a store in Florida to buy fireworks, you sign up consent form. If you actually read it, it says, one, that you will not uh, detonate said fireworks in the state of Florida. Or B, if you do detonate said fireworks, you're doing so because you're a farmer and you're scaring the birds away from your crop. So this year was the first time we didn't have to pretend to be a bunch of farmers. <laughs> this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends by At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. Whether it's uh, network needs, computer needs, anything technology related, whether it's cameras, you need to hook up the um, Amazon Fire Stick in the lobby of your business, whatever. And right now, with everybody working at home due to COVID, I cannot express the importance of two-form authentication. Secure your network with your employees logging logging in from home, and you can't consider your network secured unless you have your data backed up. So give at Computers call at 239-283-1120. They will hook you up with iDrive online backup solutions for $0.07 cents a gig per month forever. So give them a call at 239-283-1120. And as always, even if you don't live in Southwest Florida and you need some computer help, they can log into your computer with your assistance via their website. So regardless of where you live, give them a call and they can help you out. And uh, thank you guys so much. Um, the shirts have been, uh, you know, our little K-Ration shirts we put out? Yes, I love mine, dude. Um, I posted a, a few pictures, and kind of what I was expecting to happen is happening. The people who know what that means. what I've been getting a lot of, hey, where can I get that shirts at? And so I think we sold like two, a few more of them. And then um, yeah. I just recently made a Second Amendment shirt that I just got my copy of, and I posted a picture on Instagram, not even promoting a shirt, just posted a picture different topic and someone's like hey where can i get that shirt and so if you want to support the podcast and everything else we do here at digital 410 head over to wtsp world war com and get yourself a, a k ration shirt or any of the other wtsp world war ii shirts and we do we have the dinner shirt out right now but supper and breakfast will be coming soon and uh, while you're there click on that patreon link sign up for patreon get exclusive access and content to the exclusive um 
OG5 podcast. Sometimes we put up exclusive videos and you can get uh, free stickers. And basically whenever we come up with merch that we want to demo test before we send them out to the masses, you guys get first crack and usually for free. So that's all more reason why to sign up for Patreon and support the show. I just wanted to have Jeff come on and uh, hang out with us for a little bit before we get on with our interview. Coming up here shortly, we are interviewing World War II vet Jake Larson. Um, if you're on TikTok, you can see him at the channel at uh, at Storytimes with Grandpa Jake. And um, guy's all over the internet. He's got YouTube videos and he's on news broadcasts. But he has a great story. I sat down with him for, I don't know, over an hour and a half. And we got from D-Day up into uh, San Lo and touched a little bit on um, his experiences in um, the Battle of the Bulge. But um, we decided that instead of rushing through everything, we're going to bring him on for a follow-up episode here in a few weeks. So um, if you enjoy this interview we do with him today, stick around. And uh, the follow-up interview will be up here soon. But uh, before we get into the interview, I just want to ask Jeff, you got anything else going on in the World War II front over there in Texas? Well, I can tell you I just finished an incredible book. For those who know me, I am always, uh, my nose is always in a book. And nine and a half times out of ten, it's World War II. Uh, and I have just got to recommend this book real quick. It's called Deadly Sky, John C. McManus. I was fortunate to, in my real job, to host a webinar that uh, McManus was a part of, a super awesome, nice guy, probably the the most renowned Army historian today uh, during World War II. Um, he's kind of, I think he's more known for his book, The, uh, the Dead and Those About to Die. Mm-hmm. Um, He's doing a, uh, of course, he's doing a trilogy right now about uh, the Army in the Pacific. The first book was uh, Fire and Fortitude, I want to say, is the first one. Um, but anyway, Deadly Sky, it, w- it was published about 20 years ago. Uh, and so I told him, I said, man, I know this is kind of like old news to you, but man, it was an incredible book. He weaves so many oral histories together. And it's not just the European theater. It's, man, it's the Pacific. It's CBI. It's just if you were an American aviator in World War II, he has found a way to hit every niche of what it was like to be a fighter pilot, a, a, you know, a bomber crewman, every every different position on a B-17, B-29, personal experiences, comparing, contrasting, you know, what life was like living in England as opposed to just sucking it up in the jungles on some island nobody even knows how to spell, mm-hmm. you know. But so, yeah, for all of our uh, readers out there, for our listeners, dude, Deadly Sky, I mean, it is, it is awesome. But uh, yeah, with that, um, I'm going to sign off because here in a couple of days, I'm going to Port Aransas, Texas. That's down along our coast. We have over 600 miles of beaches down here. Beautiful. That's New York City. To, to, yeah, that's New York City to like Atlanta, Georgia. That's a lot of beach. <laughs> well, I think so, I'm going to yeah, give Port you your first... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, just to say, Port Rance is one of, one of the islands off the coast here, and uh, we get on there every year as a family, so I will definitely be uh, be posting on social uh, with our WTSP t-shirts uh, while I'm down there, uh, social distancing on the beach. <laughs> well, two things before we get to the interview. Uh, real quick, I think I'm going to give you your official first ever WTSP homework assignment, and that is to get the author of Deadly Sky on the podcast, because if his book is great as you say it is, why not get uh, a little preview from the uh, horse's mouth, if you will? And uh, for you longtime WTSP World War II listeners, well, you know we have a good back catalog. I think we've done about six to seven 
podcast interviews with different authors throughout the years. And if you guys haven't uh, heard our archives, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can click on the archive links. I have slowly tried to start to um, partition off the website a little bit. Um, I have the uh, I obviously our primary uh, focus is those who are there. So I've gone ahead and put all the World War II vets on one page. I'm going to put all the interviews with the authors on a page so that you guys can kind of go back and, you know, quickly get to those episodes you want to hear without digging and sorting through the archives to find them. So hopefully by next week or when this podcast goes up, there will be a page on our website. Just go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You'll see the link for those who are there, and then there will be a link for authors, and then we'll, you know, have the uh, living historians and then um, historians, etc. And uh, one of the, if you guys haven't gone back and listened to some of the back episodes, one of the interviews, obviously I'm super proud of all of our veteran interviews, but a really good interview that you guys, if you're into uh, the history of firearms and particularly the, the original Springfield Armory, I had the privilege uh, to sit down with two of the um, historians at the historical Springfield Armory site and we talk about how it was selected by George Washington all the way up through the development of firearms on the location up to when they shut it down and the name Springfield Armory, which since it was started by the government and George Washington back in the day, it was never copyrighted. It was public domain. And so once they shut down, someone bought the name and then held on to it for a few years, sold it off to the people that you know now called Springfield Armory who make your XD9 millimeters, your Saints, and all that. But other than the name, there's absolutely no relation. So we get into that in great detail. So go check out that episode in the archives as well. That is a really fun episode. Before I let you go, Jeff, I had someone share a concern with me. I don't know how you feel about it. And he said to me, um, I'm concerned that if these riots and protests don't stop, it's going to kill the hobby altogether, reenacting. And I said, well, you know, I could see it sadly having a huge impact on the Civil War community, but I don't know too much about the World War II stuff. And he's just, because obviously we all have so much financially invested into this hobby, and this particular gentleman has, you know, even more than I could even imagine um, with firearms and Jeeps and all that stuff. But uh how do you guys feel? If you're listening to this podcast, is that a concern of yours? Let us know on the f- Facebook page or send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. But has, has that concerned you at all, Jeff? Um, not in the slightest um, because history doesn't go away. You can try to change it all you want, but it's not going anywhere. And um, there's, there's too many of us that, uh, like you said, are too vested in it and believe in it too much to, uh, to let it be changed by something that I don't think is going to stand the test of time, like our subject matter. Uh, what we're going through right now is being put under a microscope and enhanced in so many different ways because it's sensationalism and it sells. History doesn't sell. We always try to sensationalize history, but if we just truly dig back to what actually happened, it cannot be written any better. A screenplay for a movie could not be better if they just followed history to the letter. Uh, and I wholeheartedly believe that. So it, it's going to stand the test of time. And what we're concerned about or what some of our folks may be concerned about will not. And that's just my, my personal opinion. I'm not worried about it in the least. With that being said, if you guys live in a state or town or community that provides you with living history events, especially if they're at a state park or a federal park, or a city-owned property, 
I can't express to you how important it is to support those events because the best way to prevent them from getting shut down is to show up, is to donate money. And I think that's more what he was concerned about, um, especially down here in Florida. We've already had a lot of the state-owned parks have already um, prevented any weapons demos with any weapons used in brass cartridges, which is great if you're mm. Civil War or French-American or you know any of the, anything prior to World War I. But uh, that completely prevents World War One, Vietnam, World War Two, Korean, etc., from doing. You know, we can do living history displays, but sadly, without the bang, bang, boom, boom, a lot of times the public aren't interested in showing up. And so I think he's concerned that the fact that we're already we've already lost a lot of events in this state due to that. Um, he's concerned that the state will continue to fall under the pressures of uh, angry groups of people and just kill it off down here altogether and i think you know that's his primary concern i don't feel that way once again i think um the guys in the civil war camp no pun intended will probably have more of a problem just because of some of the symbols that were around during that time that are in the news today i think uh some some of the events may get a little pressure but like you said and like we all know a good thing and a bad thing about modern day society is we have a short attention span it's a bad thing because we don't like to focus on anything, but in events like what's going on now, it's kind of a good thing that hopefully kind of like Jeff insinuated that this whole thing will pass by soon and uh, we can get back on with our lives. But hopefully um, it don't affect our community more than it already has. And once again, if you guys see um, – actually, I have to tell you guys. You guys are listening to this because you're down for the cause. But uh, maybe encourage people who aren't so much down for the cause or don't know about the cause, maybe encourage them to, you know, we should do a take a take a greenhorn to an event day where we um, thoroughly encourage you guys to find people who's never been to a living history event or display and take them to see why it's so damn important and to help, uh, you know, support the groups and the communities that put these things together. Because um, as you all know, if the public don't show up, the events don't go on. That's right. Well, Jeff, I appreciate your time, but uh, we got us a good interview coming up. And um, I, I know you're going to be going out of town, but I will touch base with you here soon. And uh, you got a homework assignment now. We're going to try to get your uh, first guest ever on the show. <laughs> and uh, thanks. It's good talking to you. We love having you on. Um, yeah, man. I'd think... be interested to see what the feedback is from the from the listeners. Be interested if we get any any uh, any emails or anything on social about. Any concerns like that? I'm, I'm glad you opened it up. I'd like to hear what people say, and I'd love to discuss it with them. And I think it's also important, and one of the things I enjoy about having you on the show is, one, I have somebody to talk to, but, you know, we kind of opened up the show, and we didn't get into anything World War II related for at least 15 to 20 minutes, but I think the audience may enjoy that because it it makes it more of a um, conversational-esque atmosphere, maybe less of an education forced down your throat type thing. And so, and plus I think it allows the audience to get to feel like they're knowing us on a personal level more than, you know, us coming on, just getting right down to brass tacks. So I really enjoy just the free form banter that we have before we get down to the task at hand. And I hope you enjoy it too. And I hope the audience enjoys it. So let us know if you guys want us to stop talking about wine and, uh, you know, 4th of July and just our personal lives and get down to brass tacks, let us know. And if you enjoy it and you want more of it, let us know too so we can shape this show to please you guys and to bring in more people. And the ratings are up. Thank you guys so much for that. And so just keep listening, share with your friends, and uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Jeff. 
Yep. Thank you, guys. And joining us on the phone, we are very proud and happy to have Mr. Jake Larson. As I said before, I came across him on his TikTok account, ran by his granddaughter, Michaela, called Story Times with Papa Jake. Mr. Larson, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing just great. Happy to hear. I can't remember when I had an acre of pain. Of course, I'm only 97 years old. 97 and a half. In December, I'll be 98. That's beautiful. You ready to take a little trip back in time? Absolutely, always. I think that's what that's what uh, someone has saved me for, because uh, I enjoy telling my stories, and uh, there's people enjoy listening to them. So that's what keeps me going. Well, let me ask you this: I've often said, um, and maybe you can agree, uh, agree or disagree with this, but I often said that um, other than family and friends. Life is a series of stories, and it's the stories that you can tell and your life experiences that you can share with the younger generation, with the exception of your family and friends. That's the key to life. It is the key to life. I, I, I never told any of these stories to, to my family while they were growing up. They heard them while I was telling these stories to the high school history classes, and uh, I came home and then told those stories what I told there, and uh, I've got a lot of followers in high school that uh, depended on my stories for information of the Second World War. And that's one of the things we like to do here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And so let's start telling some stories. One of the things I like to do whenever we have a veteran and or someone who was uh, living that, at that period of time, it's a simple question. It kind of sets the pace. Do you remember where you were during Pearl Harbor? Do I ever? Yes. Uh, I, I was at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana. I, I had joined the National Guard when I was 15 in 1938, along with my first cousin, Chick Larson. We joined the National Guard at 15, and uh, in uh, 1939, we went to... Uh, uh, a year's training at at Camp Ripley, Minnesota, and in 1940 we had another month training in Camp Ripley. In 1941, we were inducted into federal service February 10th, 1941. I had just turned 18 in December, and uh, Chick was still 17. He's four months younger than me. Where did you but grow up? I grew up in uh, in Hope, Minnesota, on a farm. On a farm. I grew up on a farm that had no electricity, no running water, and we milked 30 cows by hand wow. every morning and every night. 
Well, the reason I asked is you said you went to basic training at Camp Ripley, Minnesota, and I was thinking, well, if you grew up in California or Arizona, someplace hot, and then you went to Camp Ripley in Minnesota, my next question was going to be, was it during the summer or winter? And if it was in the wintertime, how did you handle it? But since you grew up in there on a farm, it was just another day for you, right? That that was it. I, I, I was born in December, so <laughs> cold never made any difference to me. It was a survival at that time. I was born up in the time, the time of prohibition. Mm-hmm. My dad was a a part-time bootlegger, <laughs> as they they couldn't make a living with the farming. He had farmed 160 acres with horses. They had no tractors or anything like that. And uh, they they lost the the farm because they couldn't make the payments. Wow! And when uh, Roosevelt got in there with the New Deal, he he started the Federal Land Bank. And uh, I can remember my parents going down to Blooming Prairie, Minnesota, where they had a, a a a land bank set up there and he borrowed the money to pay off pay off that payment you know i think a lot of people don't realize back then if you didn't live in a large city or a suburb a majority of the country were farmers and a majority of the young men and women grew up on farms and i probably really contributed to the what you guys were able to do during the war yeah payment he couldn't make that that they were going to take the farm was five hundred dollars wow five hundred dollars today sounds like chicken feed at that time it was life and death yeah so uh, The, the reason we joined the National Guard at, at 15 years old was for the money. Every three months, we, we'd receive a check for $12. $12 was like money from heaven at that time when you don't have a penny. I had to work my way through high school by helping worked for a lady that had uh, eight room and boarders. And uh, for my room and board, I helped. I ran home at noon and put that dinner on the table and cleared the table and ran back about a mile to school. Couldn't go out for sports. That's what got me to join the National Guard. And uh, it's things like that that probably pulled me through the war and saved my life because I had more training than anybody else. I was in an infantry company. What division were you assigned to? The 34th Infantry Division, the Red Bull. Nice. And so so after, after boot camp, when did the orders come out for you guys to ship out overseas? Uh... After the, well, 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 you've got to realize I was in B-52 
before the war started. Yep. Pearl Harbor started while I was down in Camp Claiborne. And one month after Pearl Harbor was when my three-year enlistment was up. Wow. So uh, uh, the Japanese uh, taking Pearl Harbor there just uh, delayed my retirement. Yeah, because... At for that, the duration, that, that's the way that they put it. They, they, you're in for the duration. But uh, how I, the, I have no regrets. At, for, the, at the time, living. at the time, how did that affect your morale? I mean, you just did your three years peacetime. Yeah, there was some stuff going on overseas, but it really didn't affect us at the time. And now your enlistment's up, and then this happens, and then you're told, "Hey, you're here for the duration." Does does well, that? Well, that, anybody. <laughs> Everybody that was in the service, I and I say everyone. I don't re- recall anyone saying uh, bad words after Pearl Harbor. They were all gung ho to get it done, get it done. So uh, right after after Pearl Harbor, we, we were shipped to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey for embarkation overseas. Hitler had uh, proclaimed war against the United States, and uh, so we were taking up the flag. So uh, we were at Fort Dix there, waiting for our ship to come in and, and haul us overseas. And uh, my, my, I had two cousins in in uh, in the 135th Infantry Regiment with me, and uh, of course we spent some time in New York. And at that time, when we met in New York, mind you, this is winter time. Sure. We we came by the the port of New York. And there, the the French luxury liner Normandy was laying three, uh, about three quarters of it on its side, and they were pumping water into it. It was on fire. This, this was that luxury liner was the fastest ship in the world at that time, the French luxury liner, and uh, it is. Uh, my first encounter with the name Normandy. After after I got overseas, I was transferred from the 34th Division into 5th Corps G3 section. G3 is plans and training. I became an operations sergeant. And uh, as... That, that was in North Ireland, and and then we we trained the 34th Division there to go in on Operation Torch in North Africa, and when they went to North Africa, G3 Fifth Corps went to Bristol, England, and uh, then we went to Taunton, Somerset, and from Taunton, Somerset. 
we went to uh, uh, yeah, golly, uh, anyway, that's where the Take your time. This is pre-recorded, so I can always edit out the you know the pauses and all uh, that. So, uh, so absolutely, just take your time. All right. I mean, yeah. I can't remember what I ate last week, and here you are telling me something that happened seventy-six years ago. So I don't expect it to roll right off the tip of your tongue. So by all well, means, take your uh, time. These names are our history. Sure. Portsmouth, Portsmouth. Even General Eisenhower had his place there. So we were put in what they called a baloney. I don't know if you ever heard that name. No. But uh, you go in one, it's like a ring of baloney, but it's all quonsets around there. And you could go in on one side, you come out the other all the way through. If anybody in that baloney was classified top Secret bigot, B I G O T. It's that's the highest classification you could get, and we were working on the invasion for after the war was over. I received the Bronze Star for what I did working on the invasion for my. How much of the invasion plans relied on the intel that you guys were getting from the French resistance at the time? Uh, uh, that, that, that is something I can't, I can't answer. Okay. I was an operations sergeant. I, I was an expert typist. And uh, I, I was just told what to type. Sure. And, and uh, but... Uh, I, I I really don't know how how that was planned. No, but I do. But I do know <clears throat> that anybody that was top secret bigger in those balloonies, you didn't walk around like like anybody else. You you were always kept under guard. <clears throat> it, that thing was so top secret. Bigot was so top secret that you weren't able to be out and walk around with what you knew. And so you didn't have the luxuries of the minimized, um, you know, freedoms no, that no, the other soldiers had anything. by... Oh, you, you, you were kept right in there, and when you, when you were there, you worked on the invasion. That, that's what you did. Now, I know from watching one of your stories, there was a day where you were kind of just milling about minding your own business, and uh, someone from the higher brass came down and basically acquired you to go with him on a reconnaissance run in a Jeep. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Oh, no, that, that, that was after the war. That was, that, that was after we landed. Oh, okay. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was uh, after we had taken St. Lowe. Okay, well, we'll get to that naturally. And so you spent the time in the um, the top secret bigot. You guys are coming up with the invasion plans, and then the day comes. Well, obviously, as we all know, the original the day was June fifth. Yes, correct. June fifth was the original day, and because of bad weather, and because the invasion was going to rely heavily on the 
um, Pathfinders and the Airborne going in first. You guys had, to, and plus, obviously, with ocean tides and the sea levels, the whole thing had to be scrapped and pushed out a day. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. But, but uh, I'd like to interject now. Sure. <laughs> Over a month before D-Day, we went back to our units and to get them all ready to move at, at the invasion, and uh, the British at that time were having an operation, they call it an operation, at Slapton Sands. It was uh, for the benefit of the Americans, they were invited to particip- participate, and uh, Slapton Sands on the southeast coast of England between Plymouth and uh, and Portsmouth, they uh, the the landings there were were like landing on Omaha Beach, and these these special landings that we were supposed to come in there on LSTs as landing ship tanks, and. Uh, these landing ship tanks, instead of holding tanks, they held 400 of of uh, soldiers. And uh, the British were going to greet them at Slapton Sands with live fire. Now, for those listening at home, correct me if I'm wrong, but this Slapton Sands operation was essentially a dress rehearsal to prepare you guys for the D-Day invasion, correct? Absolutely, yes. So uh, that we were going to get a little indoctrination from the from the British, and uh, there were three three of those LSTs, and uh, I happened to be in the left 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 one with four hundred of us there, and on top. They had armed soldiers and machine guns and everything, so that we we couldn't be intercepted. There was there was another one of these landing ship tanks to the right of us. About uh, I, I'm I, I was very poor at judging distance in in the water. I would say half a mile away, and then there was a third one, another half mile farther on. And behind us, there were groups of landing ship tanks, and I think there was 11 in all. But they were in threes coming up there to Slapton Sands. When we got close to Slapton Sands, two German E-boats intercepted us and they torpedoed the, the two landing ship tanks on my right, and they shot they, they shot uh, the heck out of the of, of the components that were taking care of the one that I was in, 
In fact, they shot so much of the stuff that they cut off our air, and we were diesel gassed. Four hundred of us wow. lay in there on the floor vomiting and uh, trying to breathe through wet handkerchiefs. And uh, I, I don't know how we made it back to Plymouth, England. We, we, we got down there, and uh, we stumbled out of there, and there was a full bird colonel that got us to attention. And uh, he said, under penalty of court-martial, you, you cannot talk about this even to your commanding officers. Well, of course, because when the news, if, if the news would have gotten out that this happened during, as we said, a dress rehearsal, not only would it have been horrible for the Allies and the morale, but it would have been a huge morale boost for the Germans to know the amount of damage they caused. And for those at home, keep in mind, you guys were there essentially doing a dress rehearsal, quote-unquote. The British had live fire, but I'm assuming the rest of the Allied equipment had minimal um, ammunition on it. So you guys were basically sitting ducks. You really couldn't defend yourselves from the Germans, yeah, could you? We couldn't. We, we had no way to defend ourselves. We, we carried the M1 Grand. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was like a pea shooter against their, their ammunition and stuff. Well, I often tell people who don't realize that you, when you guys landed and when you're doing these operations, you were essentially wearing your Sunday best. You had on wool trousers, a button-up shirt, boots, and then you just put on some leggings, a helmet, and a haversack and called it a day. You guys, you know, you weren't in special tactical equipment. You were wearing the same thing you would have worn on Sunday at church. Our, our, our main piece of defense was our helmet. <clears throat> And that pretty much yeah. provided you protection from ricocheting flying from the, rocks. From shrapnel. Exactly. Yes. Do you recall so, how many uh, lives were lost during the uh, incident at Slapton Sands? Uh, 795 people died there. Uh, and uh, they, our army did not tell anyone of uh, 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 the surviving families that their sons were uh, killed at Slapton Sands. They told them they were killed in the invasion of Europe on D-Day. That's, that's just so insane to even think about. Well, it, it, it's... Uh, uh, they said they did it to, to prevent the Germans from, uh, from knowing how many casualties they killed. Over there, but but don't you think the two e boats reported back that they had sunk two two landing ship tanks? Well, if the if the Germans were anything like the Japanese, they probably reported that they sank twelve because they always embellished everything to make their uh, officers happier with their performance. Oh, they did that, yes, but but uh, they didn't have any proof. In the publication, see, nothing came came through on that. The, the Allies kept silent about that, and and it was for, for forty years. Yeah, for for me before I found out that that was leaked. So I had not told a soul about that. 
I mean, and that's just one more. Obviously, this is before the landings, and so early on in your war experience, because you already served three years in peacetime, but early on in your war experience, you already have this emotional baggage to carry with you and to keep under your helmet and focus on the upcoming objectives and missions, and things are just going to get worse and worse. It just to start off everything with that burden is just, I guess it was a foreshadow of what was to come, right? Well, I've got also an exciting thing about D-Day, if if you want to hear a little Uh, bit about that. I got all the time in the world. I'll sit here for the next three hours. You just keep talking, sir. Uh, uh, All right. Uh, I was on the command ship. I was on the command ship, but but I landed with, with the first division. Big Red One. The big red one. We had the first and 29th divisions under us. We were in charge of Omaha Beach. That's Fifth uh, Corps was in charge of Omaha Beach under First Army, and First Army also had Utah Beach. That was under Seventh Corps, and the Fourth Division was supposed to come in on Utah Beach. Now, I didn't know this this particular until years after that uh, Slapton Sands incident was brought up. But but 400 of the ones that were sunk were from Postalap land on Utah Beach. So they had to get another division in there, and I don't know today what that division was. And the, those were guys that landed on Omaha Beach without any warning. That, that fast. Wow. What wave did you go in on? I, 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 the, the waves were all screwed up because uh, Omaha Beach, uh, they, they could not take any more onto the beach because uh, the Germans were defending it so much, so rapidly. So I think we it's... just went around. We just went around in circles out there for it. It seemed like forever. Now that's a very good point. I want to pause right there, real quick. Two things for the listeners at home who aren't um, up to speed on D-Day. One. Uh, part of the battle planning was that the Air Force was going to go in and bomb the beaches, thus making deep craters to provide giant foxholes for you guys to hide from the machine guns. That didn't happen. Most of the pilots were new, and they missed the beach, and so you guys didn't have the craters to rely on. But more importantly, you just said you were out there circling for hours and hours. Could you, for those listening at home, imagine, what you, you know, you got your helmet on, you got your 8-pound M1 Garand, you got ammo, you got your belongings in your um, musette bag or your haversack on your back. Oh, wait, it's our backpack. 75 pounds we carried. 75 pounds, and you guys are cramped, elbow to elbow, sitting. There's 30 of us in in those LSTs. And so 30 of you are riding around for hours, cramped, can't move, got all this weight on you, and then finally the time comes, and they expect you to be able to get up and run through deep water. It was a flat-bottom boat. It, it was rough seas. Some of the guys were vomiting. They were seasick. And uh, there's another blessing I've got. I, I don't get seasick. And, uh, 
But I, 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 got, I got pretty upset Sure. when you see others vomiting all over. People don't also take into account um, the environment, i.e. the landing craft you're on. I've had the benefit of doing a um, history event where we did an amphibious landing in Alabama from a real landing craft. Those ramps, when they get water wet, were super slick. And so not only have you been sitting there, now you're getting fired upon. You're supposed to get down this ramp in an orderly fashion, carrying all this heavy weight and not slip, fall into the water, uh, create, create a... We didn't have any problem there. When we got off, the ramp was so down, we landed in water that came up to our chins. The guy didn't put us in close enough. But Did, uh, did you have to inflate your invasion belt? We had no invasion belt. Wow. I had no invasion belt. I, 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 none of us had invasion belts. Our helmet was upside down, and, and the air in the top of that helmet held us up, I think. Now, when we got on that landing ship, I was the first one in there. came down that rope ladder, and the water was coming up three, four feet, and then down, and then up and down, and that, that landing craft What's coming like that? So, so getting on it was just about a impossible thing, and but we did. And I let I was I was at the last end there, right by the Navy pilot. So when they came off, I was the last guy out. And when we started in line, walking toward the beach, one thing came to our minds that Germans had over a million landmines set in in that beach. And there there were other lines coming from other other, uh, ships coming coming in. And every once in a while, you'd see a spurt of water shoot up from some guy stepping on a landmine. I made sure that I was walking in the steps of the people in front of me. And when we got to where the water was pretty, hardly any there, and I, I, I could step out, I, I found a little burl, six, eight inches, where it's just like sandstone, but it didn't it stood up against the German machine gun fire that was shooting at me from two sides. They were shooting from the left and from the right. These uh, German machine guns, these... MG-43? ...were shooting 12,000 rounds a minute. It's like a buzzsaw. Sure. And uh, they were shooting in front of me, and uh, man, I, I was I, I was kind of nervous then. I was smoked c- cigarettes then, yeah. and I had a, a waterproof cigarette holder, and I reached in and got out a cigarette, and dang, I reached in again. My matches were wet. Oh man! Not three feet behind me, there was there was another soldier. So I turned around and says, hey, buddy, 
have you got a match? I got no answer. I turned around and looked again. There was no head under the helmet. And to, to this day, I thank the spirit of that boy for me getting up and running. I, I, I came in, at the, must have came in at the time where they were reloading their machine guns, and I ran, and then they started to shooting at me. And part of the way there, I looked up and I said, God, what the hell am I doing here? I can't see anybody to shoot at, and they can shoot at me. But I made it to the cliff. I, I made it, and I thank God to this day for, for guidance from the soul of that soldier that How? had lost his head down there, back there. How old were you during when you were I was, landing? I was, 20, I was a 21-year-old buck sergeant. 21 years old. Now, uh, I'd, I'd like to finish telling sure, you. please. We, we finally made it up, the, uh, up that place where we were going to go up. was filled with uh, barbed wire and stuff, and we couldn't get, get in there and, and crawl up that damn cliff. And uh, so they got some Bangalore torpedoes. I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of Bangalore torpedoes. They're just pipe, pipes. Yeah, they're about seven uh, feet long, uh, and then you can screw them to another uh, one to make uh, them longer. And you could push one into the other and, and uh, d- double the charge. They got some, some of those, and they started putting those together. And the Germans killed uh, at least two, two of the guys that were pushing them together. But they finally got a charge up through that debris there and landed up. And that cleared the spot so we could make it up there. And as quick as we made it up there, that Germans cleared out. They they cleared out. If you get get behind those fortifications, they have no protection. Their whole thing is protection from the front. So they just cleared out. They didn't have any reinforcements because of the operation we yeah, did with Patton and the exactly. Ghost they Army. They had nobody gardening back there. Because Hitler sent all their tanks and most of their equipment up north because they, because of what the French resistance did and the false information was given out. They, the Germans thought the landing was going to be farther up north. So we got the command post set up, the G3 command post, and... Uh, it was uh, about 7 o'clock at that time, 7 o'clock in the evening, and Madison Rich, Corporal Madison Rich and I were digging our foxholes in the sand, and uh, I found a new litter that hadn't been used. It's just laying there. So I dug my foxhole a little bit larger so I could set that down in there, I planned to have my sleeping bag on top of that so I wouldn't be in the damp sand. Sure. And uh, it got to be about a quarter after seven, and I just 
put that litter down in there, and someone said, uh, called from the command post, uh, Sergeant Larson, Colonel Hill wants to see you immediately. So I went in, see Colonel Hill. He was G3, a full bird colonel, and uh, we, we, we only had two officers in G3, a full bird colonel and a lieutenant colonel, his assistant. So Colonel Hill says, uh, Sergeant, he says, I, I just got word from First Army. He says, they, they want me to keep G3 open 24 hours a day. He says, you are going to run the night shift from now on. I haven't slept since the 4th. I was running on guts, I don't know how else to say it, or, or adrenaline. And uh, I said, uh, what time is that going on? He says, from 7.30 to 7.30. Wow. That's a long shift. So uh, I went back to uh, where I had the foxhole, and uh, Corporal Rich w was just climbing into his sleeping bag. And I said, Maddie, you could sleep in my foxhole tonight. I got that litter in there. He, he reached over and laid his M1 Grand Rifle on my litter. I went in to work. He went to sleep. At midnight, reconnaissance, German reconnaissance planes came over. And uh, they lit up the sky with these little uh, handkerchief parachute uh, magnesium flares and uh, our anti-aircraft started shooting up at, at uh, reconnaissance planes and uh, a after an hour that all quiet down and uh, I, 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 I don't know how I spent that night I, I, I was in another another land another world but uh, it came time to be relieved, and uh, I went back to where Madison Rich was, and uh, he he reached over and picked up his M1 Grand off of my litter, and it fell in two. A piece of shrapnel from our anti-aircraft had come down and hit that gun and broke it right in two. Wow, and that's a heavy, thick stock on that thing, too. It's un unbelievable. This story, uh, people say, oh, d d d d d did you just make that up for, for confirmation? On the 75th anniversary of D-Day, uh, I was over in France. Uh, I was on Omaha Beach. I had five reporters following me, and... A German photographer trailing behind. After the five reporters got through with me, a reporter from Moscow came and interviewed me. And uh, this was broadcast all, all over the United States. And uh, I, I got uh, cards from Sweden. And uh, there was there was a a young guy in New York that saw that broadcast, and uh, 
he called his brother in New Jersey. He said, uh, you, you know, Frank, he says, I, I wonder if that Jake Larson they're talking about is the one our dad always talked about. And finally, they got a hold of the bagel shop, because I mentioned that, and they got a hold of my son, Carl, and this guy said, you know, my my dad talked about Jake Larson when he was over there, and about that, his gun being broke right in two at the landing on D-Day. And uh, Carlin says, well, what was your dad's first and last name? My, my dad's name. Sorry. That's all right. I, I, can't, I can't believe that I'm getting into this just so My dad's name was Madison Rich. And my son said, that's the one, yeah, that's that's my dad, yeah. This Madison Rich's son came to California and saw and saw me because of that broadcast. So I'm I'm reassured this isn't a made-up story. It's confirmed now. And it's a beautiful story, the fact that because of technology, obviously technology is how I got you know, you know, in contact with you, but because of technology and the ability to broadcast a news story around the world, here you are in France on the 75th anniversary of D-Day, which was last year for those listening at home, and the son of someone that you shared a foxhole with 75 years earlier, that you probably yeah. never, was able to just... Probably through the internet, get a hold of the bagel shop's phone number, put in a phone call, and thank God. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It, it is, it, it, it's just like out of this world, like like a Buck Rogers story. Yep. Uh, I, I, am, I am so blessed, John. I, I'm so blessed in life. And I, I was blessed over there, and I, I, I want to hear state. That my reason for going over to uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day was not for my benefit. I wanted my children to to go over there and see some of the stuff that I had gone through, and I I wanted to pay my respects to over the nine thousand that gave their life that I could be here. I'm the only one alive. I'm the only one alive in the three different years that I was in. I, it's, uh, I, I get a few tears when I start talking about this. Sure. And not only is it important for your family to go over there, um, because as I've said, talking with other vets in the past, it's one thing to read it in the books, to see some old black and white photos on the internet, but when you're standing there and you're smelling the sea air and you're seeing the wide, vast range of that beach, 
now all the stories that you've heard your grandparents talk about, your parents talking about, or you've saw, seen on TV or you've heard in interviews, it all becomes more real. And not only well, that, but for the people who live there and their children and their grandchildren who see this large swath of people show up every year, it helps them to remember what happened to liberate them from German occupation and to help keep that history alive for their future generations. Yes. Uh, see, uh, I, I didn't realize how we were going to be honored over there. They had this amphitheater for all of the veterans that landed on D-Day. And there were about 60 of us there. And President Trump came in, and the the French president came in, and uh, pres- uh, the French president came in and started shaking the hand of every of soldier that landed on D-Day. And uh, President Trump came in, and he shook he, he shook the hands of, of five of us. I was the fifth one, and then he went back down and and left. But the the president did come and shake my hand and said, "Thank you for your service." unbelievable that, that things like that happened to me. I, I, I've been so blessed in life and uh, this, this back on, on, on Omaha Beach will never, never leave me. Never, never leave me. Uh, it, it, it was a pleasure trip this time. There, there was nobody trying to kill me. Well, uh, not only were they not trying to kill you, you were welcome with open arms. You you had a oh, hero's uh, welcome. They, they, the, 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 the French students and people, uh, I had a sore hand for shaking hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, was, it was really crazy. But... Uh, those people, I wore a band that they put on my right hand arm because that was identification that you were a participant. You probably and felt on that band. It said, "We remember," and God do I remember. Yes, we. And I went to Belgium. Yes, over in Belgium, they still very, very grateful for they, what you guys did. They had the same thing on theirs. We remember, and they were they they were more trying to get to me than the the, the French. They just crowded you. You probably felt like Bob Hope for the day, huh? Uh, it, 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 Yes, I I out I outdid Bob Hope. Yes, I outdid Bob Hope for that period. <laughs> at, at, 
at Mayhay, they they put on a special show for for me. Uh, I, 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 I was the only one from uh, Fifth Corps uh, alive, and Fifth Corps had landed in Eupen, Belgium, and uh, I, I was the only one alive. So they put on this special show. They had three girls from Arizona who who represented the Andrews sisters mm-hmm. to us, and they had the same songs and everything. And uh, when we came in there, those girls were already sa- singing when we got there. And uh, the place was crowded. And uh, I had special guards. Uh, I had a colonel from the Arizona Rangers. I had a, a, a private policeman from Los Angeles, and those two guys escorted me wherever. And when we came in, one of them said, you belong up front, Jake. I said, there's no seats up there. There is now. They grabbed a folding chair and got me up front right, right by the bandstand and where the girls were singing. And... That whole crowd stood up and cheered, and those girls sang all the songs. And when it, and in the meantime, different people would come up and take my picture and shake my hand. And when it was time to leave, I stood up and waved, waved my hat. And one one of those girls came down. And, and sang to me and danced with me. And uh, then we, we tried to make it out. Man, that, that must have been uh, 500 or close or more crowded into that small building. And uh, as I made my way through, I had the sign, autographs. In fact, one guy didn't have anything to write on, so he jumped up on a table and stretched his pants over his buttocks, and I, <laughs> I, 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 I signed his buttocks on the way out. It's things like that that were unforgettable. Then the next night, they performed again, and... Instead of just like like the night before, except when I left this time, all three of the girls came down and danced with me, and everybody was standing up cheering. And as I made my way out, signing autographs, I looked. There was a woman, woman probably in her fifties, standing. Behind the guys, the guys wouldn't let anybody up there. And she had this adoration look on her face. And I told everybody stop, and I pointed at her. And finally, they cleared a spot to her, and she goes, she pointed to herself, me? 
yeah, I said, yes, you. Uh, and I pointed for her, come here. And I came, she came over there, and uh, I, I got a hug from her, and I gave her an autograph. Uh, that woman was really happy. Well, absolutely. You made her trip even that much more special. I mean, she's there witnessing all this beautiful celebration of the 75th anniversary. She's in the crowd, and you, you know, we kind of joked about a Bob Hope. You kind of pulled a Frank Sinatra and told security, hey, She's with me. Let her in. And, and, you, and you made her feel so special, and that's just beautiful. Well, well like, I don't know how I could resist. She had that, that adoration look. You know, my God. She, she, she was enjoying just seeing me. See? So. so. Do you want to get into your... Uh, Adventures at San Lo. I understand you uh, misplaced your firearm. Is that correct? Oh, uh, I lost my uh, firearm. I, I lost my grand rifle off the truck while we were moving. So let's get into a little bit. So now D-Day, the beach has been captured, and you guys are moving out to San Lo. Let's get into that a little bit. Uh, all, all right. Uh, I, I See, you've got to realize that I worked every night from 7.30 at night till 7.30 at night. I ran G3 at, at, at the night shift. So when I'd get up to uh, eat and then go to sleep, that's when war started. That's, that's when the Germans started shelling. And... I I was sleeping in a ditch at that time. The the the, the ditch was uh, not uh, finished off, and uh, I I plugged my half my, my half a tent, whatever you call that. Shelter now. half. Yeah, 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 into the side of that ditch. It was about three foot high there. So it made a good place for me to crawl in. So for those listening at home, um, what a shelter half is, is obviously back then in combat you had a battle buddy. And so to lighten the load... It's a, well, in combat you did, but I I didn't have a battle buddy. I, I was in there by myself. So when, when I woke up about 2 o'clock... I just automatically opened up my canteen and took out the liner for my help, put some water in there, and I brushed my teeth. And then I was going to shave, so I dumped that water out and put it, put in some more water. And somebody said, "Somebody on the road, man!" And I'm there within three feet of the road, and they were carrying stuff there. I wasn't paying no attention. Soldiers going by carrying stuff, and, and I was just going to start shaving. Somebody said, "What the hell are you doing down there?" <laughs> I said, "I just brushed my teeth and I don't want to shave." He said, "What the hell are you doing here? You were had this cleared. There's a hundred and fifty-five millimeter shell came over you and landed on the road here." We're sandbagging it. We're going to explode it. 
mind you to say, I changed. I got out of there. Yep. But uh, I was immune to any sound. Uh, shelling and everything else. Yeah, after a while it just becomes background noise because it's so consistent. So, uh, the next day, I I was up walking around and uh, I ran into Colonel Hill and he says, uh, Sergeant, uh, what are you doing? I says, I'm just walking around, just seeing things. He he says, uh, they got a they got a new command post for us to move up tomorrow. He says, uh, would you like to go out there and and check it out for me? He says, I'll call a, call for a jeep. So he called for a jeep, and uh, I had a little handwritten diagram of where we were going to go. And uh, he's driving, driving along and looking, and uh, oh, I says, "By golly, you, you know, I think I think we missed the spot. Uh, I I think there was a, a a driveway back there." And uh, so so the driver turns around. In the meantime, a, another driver drives into that driveway. And hits a landmine. Uh, I'll tell you, I know from from my experiences that somebody was looking out for me. It's it's crazy to think that. Same same way when I got to Belgium. If there's a, even to Paris and Falaise Gap, there's another one. See all all those places. Those were part of my battles. Battles like I went through six different battles, and uh, it came out without a scratch, and came out with a pretty good memory. Yeah. So how many campaigns did you serve in throughout the war? I, I, I went through six battles. What, what was your last? Uh, Battle of the Bulge. You want, you want to get into that a little bit? Do you have time? Oh, I certainly do, yes. Let's get in a little bit, bit of the Battle of the Bulge. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll finish this up with the Battle of the Bulge, and then any time you want to come on and share more of your stories, my door is always open. That, that sounds good, Don. Okay, so let's. Here it is. The Germans have broken through the Ardan Forest. They're pulling everybody back in off of R and R. They're trying to get everybody to create a front lines to protect that area. So pick it up from there. So, uh, so the, the, that was the night of December fifteenth. Uh, I remember uh, not because of the battles and everything. But because Marlene Dietrich was supposed to perform for the USO for us troops, 
but uh, Sergeant Larson had to work. As always. Yeah. Old, old reliable Larson, come on, you can't enjoy the show. Yeah, no, no. So, so uh, Sergeant Larson, while Marlene Dietrich was performing out there for the troops, I, I had to, I had to work, and uh, so so two o'clock in the morning of December sixteenth, two o'clock in the morning, up drives an MP jeep, and a corporal MP corporal comes out of that, and he's so excited, he salutes me. I'm a staff sergeant. And he, he, he's so excited, he says, Sergeant, he says, I'm from post number six. And I was walking my post, and I looked up, and German parachutists wow. were coming down. And I says, what did you do? He, he says, I jumped in my Jeep and came up here. I says, good thinking, good thinking. So... I went right away to the back and woke up Colonel Hill in his uh, his uh, motorized home, and uh, as I woke him up and told told him about the parachutists coming down at post number six, he says, uh, Sergeant, he says you go wake up General Drew. So I woke up General Drew. And uh, that was at 2 o'clock in the morning, and we alerted 1st Army. We, we, we alerted uh, two divisions under us uh, on the line. I, I never saw any of this ever put in, into print. So uh, at, at 5.30 the next morning, that morning, that's when the Germans came with their tanks. The Battle of the Bull started. So I was in on the exact, before the battle started, with the German paratroopers landing. You are basically at the tip of the spear of the intelligence side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that's, that's when the paratroopers, German uh, Flossenjäger, Pfeiffer, Colonel Pfeiffer. Okay. Uh, he was in charge of the of their their uh, tank the tank division. Okay. And they came through Malmody, and they had captured. At first, I thought it was. Uh, so the, the, the way the news we we got news pretty slow because they cut us off from First Army by come capturing a, a bunch of uh, engineers down there, and they they it was snowing in winter time, and they they lined them up with their hands over their head in the ditch, and as the tanks drove by, they machine gunned them. They machine gun those guys. Of course, they dropped right down and, and pretended like they were killed. 
But the machine guns, as they came in, they sprayed them regardless. Well, four of those guys lived. And one of them was a, a, a lieutenant, and uh, he lost his mind. But there, there's three of them that made it through there. There were others, I think, three, four, that got to a schoolhouse right there close by. And uh, instead of just saying, drop your hands and give up, they made them march out. And as they marched out, they, they just machine gunned those guys, too. So uh, there, there was no giving up. That event came to be known as the Mal Malmody Massacre. Massacre of Malmody. Yep. Melbourne Massacre. Yes. <laughs> and being cut off from First Army, we were assigned to Field Marshal Montgomery's 21st Army Group. So that's, that's where I, I, I spent the majority of time as a part of Field Marshal Montgomery. How many people do you know that was also part of the British forces? Me personally? Just you. Our whole group, the 5th Corps was there. Yep. The whole of 5th Corps. And we had two divisions on the line, the 1st and the 29th. And... Uh, when Third uh, Army finally got there to re relieve the 101st Infantry Div Division, and uh, we uh, put the squeeze on them from the top, and that's when the Germans finally had to lay down their arms and march out of there. And uh, I, I turned uh, 22 years old at the Battle of the Bulge, December 20th, 1944. Does it, I assume the cold was as bad as everybody says it was. I, I, I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember the cold, but I do remember the guns and the shooting and everything. I don't remember the cold at all. I just don't. Well, you know, and that's the benefit of the environment in which you were born and raised. It allowed you to function at your normal level, opposed to men who grew up on the West Coast or Florida. There were some guys on the that uh, had frozen toes, and they had to have them removed. And things, but but, but I, I was always active. I, I kept moving. You you can't sit and and freeze to death. You've got to move. 
that, that's one thing. When it's cold, you just don't say, oh, I give up and uh, stay in there. You've you got to move. You, you can't let the weather take over you. How does one do that when, uh, you know, stuck in a foxhole on the front line, though? I mean, there's probably... Well, uh, well, pound your your feet together, stomp them or something. They can't hear that in there. Sure, everything's muffled. Yeah. His name yeah. is Jake Larson. You can find him on TikTok via his granddaughter's page, at Storytimes with Papa Jake. Jake Larson, thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. And as I said earlier, I will get in contact with you, and we will have you on for a future episode. How does that sound? It's been a pleasure, and uh, I, I appreciate using your time One of to the th- interview me. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. One of the things I like to do when I interview uh, vets, with all the life experience you've had, and with even now it's even more relevant, with all that's going on in the world, do you have any advice for the younger generation? I, I Join the service. You will never be sorry. You'll never be sorry. We we need all the help we can get, and God bless all you who are in the service, who have joined the service, or are planning to join. It it makes a individual out of you that no one will overlook. You'll always be thanked for your service. Thank thank you all. God bless you all. And God bless you, Mr. Larson. You enjoy that beautiful California weather. I know it's probably 11 a.m. over there. Um, I'm down here in the hot, humid Florida. But I will talk to you again soon, sir, and thank you so much for everything. Uh, And thanks again, Don. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 